This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives online. I'm Sarah Tasker and this is episode 89. Hello my friends, how are you all doing? Today's episode I first recorded shortly, I think it was just before lockdown began, and then it felt like the whole world had been tipped upside down for so many of us. And so I pressed pause on putting out any new episodes. And honestly, I think I'd probably still be somewhere around that pause button if it didn't feel so, so important to share today's episode with you right now. Nova Reed, my guest today, is an inspirational TED speaker, a writer, and a diversity and anti-racism campaigner. Her core audience is liberal white women who have already begun to grow their awareness around inequality and racism, but are looking to take bigger steps now to unlearn their prejudices and access tools and resources that are going to help them be a part of real and lasting change. That is me, 100%, and I know it's also a lot of you who are out there listening to this podcast, so I'm just so grateful to Nova for giving us her time to record this episode with me. Nova is wonderfully articulate and so generous with her knowledge, so I can pretty much promise that wherever you are coming at this from, you will get something out of this following conversation. Since recording, Nova has actually launched her own podcast that she started to create during lockdown. It's called Conversations with Nova Reed, and I so highly recommend that you go and check it out, subscribe, add it to your podcast feed. I've included links to all of her episodes as well as everything that she talks about and all of the work and resources she references in the show notes for this episode, which you'll find on my website or just in your podcast app. Okay, enough waffle from me. Let's hear from Nova. Hi, Nova. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It is so exciting to be talking to you. I'm a huge fan of your work. For anyone who's not come across it yet, could you give them a quick introduction to yourself and what you do? Mm, I guess the short version is um, I like to help people be the change that they want to see in the world, particularly with anti-racism, raising socially conscious children and just being wonderful human beings who don't want to repeat cycles of behavior and I do that through online anti-racism courses I work with corporates I do lots of diversity consultancy as well and I work with individuals on a one-to-one basis and I do lots of public speaking and TEDx talks and things so yeah bit of a mixed bag but generally to help people be the change that they want to see. I love that and actually what I really love is when you look at your kind of career history it feels like everything you've done previously perfectly qualified you to be here and now taking up this space does it feel like that from the inside it does now but before it made no sense because my mum <laughs> my would sort of look at my career she'd like why can't you just focus on one thing it's been very very eclectic and very diverse but it absolutely puts me in a position to be able to do what is often some very challenging work in a way that I feel is different to other people yeah well yeah actually like one of the questions I often ask people like as a bit of an icebreaker is what did you do straight from school like what did you think you were going to be and what subjects did you choose (laughs) and then see how crazy windy the path is and when you speak to someone who's like who you think has got it all sorted when you look at all that crazy path like it's all a learning journey we have to go on and actually there's no wrong decisions because you're able to bring everything you learn along the way yeah so my um my, my first love I guess is I used to be an actress and singer 
and it was before the days of social media so <laughs> thankfully there's not much evidence oh. there's not much photographic <laughs> evidence because we were pr- we were sort of printing film then and going into dark rooms with cameras so I'm um, showing my age uh, but I I used to work on stage so a lot of my work was around confidence public speaking performing um auditioning and it was very much about what you look like as well so it was almost the start of well it wasn't the start but it was certainly a significant point in my life where I realized that my race was a hindrance Mm. um to working in that industry um in comparison to the opportunities that my my white peers were getting so I started to realize wow okay what is going on here and and is this racism and wow so yeah that was my my first love and so I did a bit of theater and um little bit of film and tv as well actually um and then I had an injury I also lost my agent at the time I had a a couple of agents and I clearly wasn't I wasn't working enough for them and I uh, and they got rid of me and said that they no longer wanted to represent me and as a result of that I just really lost my confidence and I had a an injury as well so it was the perfect excuse for me to just sidestep out of the industry and um, I retrained. I was temping, trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I retrained I, um, in well-being, in therapy. And I did that um, alongside doing – I was still doing session singing. So I did a lot of sorts, doing background singing for Beverly Knight or, um, stuff, you know, back, gospel singing in shows like – I can't remember now. X Factor, I'm sure I did it. I love some how point. you say that so casually. <laughs> just, just Beverly Knight and the X Factor. Just, just, just session singing and, and bits like that. So I was still doing that, but I wasn't doing like big contracts on stage. And I did that alongside sort of training up in mental health um, and disability. So I've always been a bit of an advocate for the underdog. Um, and everything kind of felt like it happened by accident, really. These opportunities just sort of came to me because my first love of of being on stage wasn't meant to be um yeah yeah it's kind of a magical way of it unfolding for you and I think you know you mentioned maybe approaching this work in a, in a different way to what's already being done and that was one of the things that immediately stood out to me as obviously as, as kind of a white woman as, as someone who's probably like the end consumer of your your product a lot of the time, was the amount of compassion and kind of grace you give to the people who you're speaking to. And, and, you know, there's a lot of anger and hurt that comes up with with racism. and, And understandably, like, that's a lot of the messaging. So to come across somebody who was talking about it in a way that that kind of said, you're going to feel a ton of shame about this, but that's okay and we can make space for that and work through it and that doesn't have to be a barrier, seemed really powerful. Yeah, to me, I mean, I... So when I started working in mental health, I had no qualifications. So I was starting fresh. I was like a sponge and they sent me on... um, I had introductory counselling skills training, vast mental health, everything from sort of managing or helping people manage anxiety right through to borderline personality disorder schizophrenia um and so I had this vast amount of training over 
well, initial training over a year, my training went on for years, um, as well as I was really interested in learning about NLP, so applied psychology, and um, particularly with my psychotherapy, the introduction to my psychotherapy training, it was very much about how damaging it is to shame mm-hmm. us as human beings, regardless of what we bring up. And we also had, it was a lot around boundaries and also being self-aware of our own judgments because if we get somebody who is a client or somebody who needs our help that might be talking about trying to not um do something horrible like pedophilia right I have to be I have to find a way to hold compassion and empathy even even if I find the act repulsive I need to find a way to hold compassion and empathy so I can do my job properly. If there is, you know, of course there are boundaries and there are barriers. If there is any fear or risk that they're going to cause harm to somebody or themselves, then of course we need to to inform the relevant um, body. But it was a, I used that really extreme example about the importance to hold compassion for each other as human beings, regardless of our behaviour. And it's not easy but it is vital if you want to facilitate trade change. Because that, that example is perfect, that the paedophile who seeks help and has a conversation with somebody about it is less likely to offend and more likely to, to be helped than the person who feels so much shame about it that they don't reach out to somebody. In theory, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But yes, obviously we're not talking. <laughs> no, we're not, sorry. I, I do this to use extreme examples, but I guess, you know, in, in keeping with what we're talking about, like I've received a lot of racism that has caused me trauma mm. from white people. So in order for me to do this work, I have to hold empathy and compassion. Otherwise I would just be, I would just be incandescent with rage and you can't do the work when you're operating from that space. That's so hard. It sounds like you must have had to do an awful lot of work internally before you were able to then hold that space for other people. Yeah, so um, it kind of happened accidentally. So I, it was never a plan to be an anti-racism campaigner. <laughs> <laughs> it was never a career path. I always wanted to sing and act and then um, retrain sort of in mental well-being. And um, it was never the plan. And it just ended up being that because I got, I just saw things not progressing and I thought I I want to do something about this I need to do something about this it felt like a calling so but in that meantime I'd had all this training in therapy so of course when you're going when you're training a therapy and you're working in the therapeutic space you also have to go through something called clinical supervision every two weeks which is like a form of counseling and it helps you remain self-aware and to sort out your own shit basically Mm -hmm. and also I have been in therapy as well uh because I I needed to and wanted to and I think every single human being should have therapy if I'm honest um I totally agree slightly biased but it can be just why would you not want to develop yourself anyway so I've always had that within me I always love learning and then of course when it came I think I really started gaining momentum with anti-racism work in 2018 And then I was like, okay, now it makes sense why I've done all these things in my life. Did you have any trepidation about taking up that space? Because I imagine it's a little bit like putting your head above the parapet, is that the expression? And 
I'm imagining that you don't always get the most warm communications in your inbox on Instagram, for example. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I didn't really think it through. I don't know <laughs> if that's good or bad. I just, I just had a calling. Like, I need to do something. Like, mm. I'm, I'm tired of being at the effect of this. And I can see that we're on the cusp of change if more people just wake up and understand what racism is beyond an overt act of hate. And we'll probably get into that a bit more mm. later. But I, I ju- it was just an urge. It was, I, I can't. It was a physiological urge. I have to do something. So I didn't really give it much thought. I just started talking much more openly on my platforms because before that, um, I had a wedding blog and the wedding blog was born out of my own engagement as a modern British woman who is also black. The wedding industry is very homogenous. Pick Mm -hmm. up wedding magazines and the majority of the time there were just white women on there. And I was like, wow. So even now as an adult and I'm getting married and doing having a celebration that's so universal, love, and all I see is no one that looks like me. And so as a result of that, um, I started getting attraction from well-known brands like Oscar de la Renta, and they wanted to advertise with me or to invite me to events because there was no other publication in the UK that was speaking to the audience that I was. So stylish women who might have a bit of brown black or brown skin or melanin seems unbelievable doesn't it? <laughs> it does um and so as a result of that I started to do diversity consultancy which is much more broad it's not just about race it's disability it's everyone who wasn't included LGBTQ couples it was it was everyone who wasn't included and I was doing that and then it just lent more into race I was like wow the, the stuff that people really struggle to talk about is race so that's it just changed gears and so I guess I didn't really think it through I just did it um but I have learned the hard way I used to try and speak more generally to as many people as possible about anti-racism and that can be really painful and um hostile for me as a black woman and so I learned that there is a specific type of person who is white that I'm speaking to they understand that there are disparities with race, inequity with race. They understand that um, in order for slavery and systems of oppression to exist, so in order for a community of people who have black or brown skin to be seen as less, less, well, inferior, Mm there needed to be a collective of people who were seen as superior and they understand that that collective of people were white people. So they have that understanding, but they just don't know what to do next to help. So I learned that I was speaking to that audience rather than the, oh, why haven't we got over it yet? Let's just stop talking about it. Let's all get along and be kind. Um, And there is a a fine line between the two, but the, the, the latter are not ready to hear it yet. And it becomes quite a hostile space. The former are like, okay, we know this is a problem. We don't fully understand why, but we're open and listening because we don't want to live in a world where this continues to happen and where we pass on our isms to our children. That's such a profound realisation. I feel like like you can see how you can have more impact in yeah. that right group. And actually you're, you're conserving your energy for where it's going to have the most impact. Um, but also protecting yourself, it sounds like, from conversations you don't need to be having and devoting your energy to. Well, I learned the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> don't we all? 
and also it was um like people often ask me how long I'll be doing this work and I know that I won't be doing it for very long because it does have an impact like I Mm. am a black woman and in order for me to do this work it means I am opening myself up to hearing about racism talking about racism seeing racism on a regular basis and racism is a form of trauma Mm. Um, neuroscience shows us that it is neuroscience shows us that every day the everyday racism that we probably don't think is racism or don't understand it to be, um, the everyday exposure to racial stress can cause more harm than a single act of overt hate. So, yeah, it's it's certainly not easy work, but I do think that I have the tools and the resilience to do it. But I also recognise I will not be doing this for an extended period of time. I guess I want to say thank you for doing it at all because... Obviously, in an ideal world, no one would have to, and it it is yeah. it is it's a sacrifice in some ways. Although, as well, you're obviously making it into an amazing growth opportunity for yourself. Yeah, and also, um, it's for it's for when I say us, it's for us collectively, but it's really for my black and brown peers. So mm. that the more people I'm bringing on, the more white people I'm bringing on this journey the less harm that is being caused to us at the end point. So that's the end goal, reducing harm. Yeah. So maybe let's speak to those people. Actually, I've got two questions here because the first one I would love to know is how does that translate in practical terms for you to be targeting the people you know who are receptive to it and not chasing the people who aren't? Um, In my language, Mm. um, I will do things on Instagram or in my newsletters that say this work is for you if you are XXX. (laughs) If you believe in a world where there is equality and justice for everybody, if you don't want to see studies and surveys being done on children who are experiencing bullying in the playground because other children don't want to play with them because they've got brown skin. If you Mm. don't want to see that happening anymore, if, you know, if you want to understand more about what systemic racism is, what racism is beyond an overt act of hate, then this is for you. So I kind of use sentence stems that invite people in or repel people. Yeah. I ask that because I, that's a question that like all business owners struggle with, right? Like how do I speak to my right people yeah. and not everybody else? But this is a really like sort of an extreme example where you, you need to do it to kind of safeguard yourself. It is. Yeah. And, I, and at, at one point I would say things like, this is not for you if you still use phrases like I don't see colour. And the flip side of that will be, this is for you if you now understand why I don't see colour as harmful. Right. And was there a difference, do you think, in those two wordings in the response that you would get? What, depending on how I frame it? Yeah. I'm just interested if if people would maybe email and go, well, I don't see colour and da-da-da-da from the first Um, one. Really, no. It, it again. It just repels or it attracts. I mean, there's been times when I've done I've done a post on my ind- Instagram about I don't see color, and it's been a really popular one. Or I'm colorblind, those kinds of things, mm-hmm. and where I've given context as to why those statements, those well-meaning statements, are actually more harmful um, because they perpetuate racism. Um, 
And so for those people who are still using those terms and thinking, actually, well, this is how we should be teaching our children, there is, again, research and evidence that shows children who are raised with a colourblind, I use inverted quotes, with a colourblind approach or who use terms or phrase like I don't see colour are less able to recognise discrimination when it happens and it has the complete and utter opposite effect. Wow. So then when I show them the stats and the information and the fact, then they're like, oh, my God, I, I just that's it. They just don't use it anymore. <laughs> and it's a non-issue. Um, so sometimes, you know, if I'm doing an education piece and I will give the information, but otherwise those people already know that stuff who are coming to me yeah. and they're coming to me because they want to, you know, find tangible ways where they can help be your really good ally or where they can help raise socially conscious children and where they feel more comfortable with having conversations about race and difference with their children without feeling awkward. It's tricky when we have a broad listenership. People may be coming to this from all different kind of points on this journey of understanding how racism exists in the world today. Um, I think maybe would it be helpful if we talked through, I know you did that amazing TED talk on microaggressions mm-hmm. and kind of some of the things that maybe people are missing that are happening for people of colour right now. So I think it would be really helpful. Um, it's such a big talk. It's 15 minutes. I'd recommend you grab a cup of tea after this and watch it because it's just so clear. But the the, the racism that, that is, a, is a challenge, particularly in and I would say UK and other Western countries, is that as a society, Britain was founded upon colonisation and slavery. So that existed in Britain for about 400 years, and that's what's been recorded. So it was legal to keep black people as slaves. It was legal for them to not have any rights. It was perfectly acceptable to kill them and to beat them and to use them as a commodity. That was legal. And that was for 400 years. That's going to leave a residue on the financial infrastructure, the economy, um, how we treat each other, how we see each other. And so for me, the work that I do is helping people understand where we've come from in order to understand how systems of systemic racism and systemic racism and oppression continue today. So um, let me give some tangible examples. Many people feel like this conversation about race is a really frustrating one and that if we all just stop talking about it and just be kind to each other, then that will end it. History has shown us that's not the case. We still have great problems with racism in 2020, but it's not the overt. I mean, the overt is there. and We're seeing stats that show we're seeing increases in overt acts of hate because of our current political climate, but that's still in the minority. Because what was once normal, so it was once legal to treat another human being as subhuman, it's legal, when the laws change, we're like, okay, this isn't, this isn't legal anymore. We now need to be nice to everybody and everyone's equal. But what did we do to actually shift mindset around what was a 400-year legacy? Nothing. Mm-hmm. In 2015, UK taxpayers were still paying off slavery reparations. So that was a form of compensation to white families who owned anyone who was enslaved. So this. The people who were enslaved, so my ancestors who had everything stripped away from them, some born into it, got absolutely nothing. 
So if you look at that from basic, the basic economy, of course we have an ethnicity pay gap right now. Mm. Of course we have um, not only the patriarchy, but of course we have systems where white men and women are being paid more for the same job than people of colour. So it's it's helping people understand how these systems existed and how they manifest today. And that's just one example. There are so many more I could give. And it's it's recent history. Like it of course. sometimes doesn't feel it, does it? But um I knew my great grandma who was born at the end of the eighteen hundreds and I got yeah, to know wow. her as, you know, as a human. And that to me always that's my kind of tether to the past when I look at that and I think, gosh, this was not that long ago. It's just a couple of lifetimes really. Yeah, yeah. And that's just, you know, that's UK. We, you know, uh, uh, slavery uh, was abolished, um, you know, in, in, in the 19th century. But if you look yeah. at things like apartheid and um, how in America it was illegal to have a interracial relationship until the 1960s. Oh, my goodness. It's not that long ago. Like no wonder, no wonder there's still people who are struggling to kind of catch up. Yeah. God, I'm not normally... I know, it's big. It's big. <laughs> yeah. It's a big topic. It I huge. get it. <laughs> <laughs> and you probably need processing time as well because we've learned, we've become, we have learned that the only form of racism that exists is anything that is intentional and is conscious to cause harm to another person based on the sole belief that one's race is more superior to another. So we've learned that, and that's a dictionary definition. Well, I've given you an abbreviated version, yeah. but that's based on the dictionary definition that was start, first used in 1902, and we're still using it. What, we've had, what we forget is that racism has got nothing to do with being a horrible human being. It's how we think about each other it's the assumptions we make about each other it's the disparities in uh, pay gaps that I've just spoken to you about it's the everyday stuff um that is often caused by well-meaning people who don't realize so because we've only learned that racism exists as a conscious and intentional act of hate done by a horrible person that's yeah. probably a man with swash stickers or wearing a pointy hat when we start talking about racism now, in terms of like good, well-meaning people, of course you're going to want to reject that because you're yeah. thinking that I, that you're thinking that the type of racism I'm talking about is that overt, that overt act of hate. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the subconscious stuff. I'm talking about the stuff that you've learned that you don't even realise. And of course, then you don't identify yourself with that caricature of kind of how racism can be on a bigger scale no because you don't want to identify yourself as a bad person of course and I guess that's one of the things that I think makes your work really accessible to people who especially if you're kind of new to thinking about this stuff is that you know you can still be a good person but have internalized racism that you need to work through absolutely and in fact we all do absolutely everyone everyone does even um Mostly white people do because of the systems that our country and other Western countries, anyone that was involved in colonialism, basically, or the, yeah. or the transatlantic slave trade has the same programming um, and the same uh, potential same worldview. Um, but there, you can internalise racism on yourself if you are black and brown as well, because we've had exposure to the same programming. 
It's frightening, really, isn't it's it? It's very frightening. It's very frightening. And I've done a lot of work on myself to unlearn that. Yeah. And I'm not a bad person. I'm not <laughs> horrible. I learned it too. So, yeah. In fact, it's the fact that we're good people that is going to be the thing that makes us do the work and actually want to improve. Well, that's the bit that I find both powerfully inspiring and equally frustrating <laughs> because people who like who who intentionally want to hurt another human being solely because of the color of their skin are, are in such a small minority. Yeah. But people who are well-meaning, kind, liberals, who want a world where we have equality for all, who genuinely believe in that, but are not doing anything because they don't feel like they're part of the problem or they don't realise they're part of the solution, they're in the powerful majority. And I'm like, if more people could just wake up, we could have a powerful movement of change. Yeah, and it could happen soon. Yeah, soon, soon. And I guess the other kind of category we maybe could mention there is I think there's a lot of people and especially in this time of social media and kind of pile on culture who perhaps maybe want to be a part of the solution, but are so frightened of saying or doing the wrong thing. Yes. Um, fear is a huge barrier to change. Fear of getting it wrong, fear of causing offence, fear of what other people might think if they see that I'm doing this work. Yeah. Fear, 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 fear. And I always say, you know, um, this work is requiring you to get out of your comfort zone and that's going to be accompanied by fear. That's fine. But actually, we have to reframe it. Like, what are we doing this for? What's the end goal? The end goal is to reduce harm. The end goal is to do your part in unlearning or dismantling or stopping racism. And that is more, that's bigger than your fear. Yes. So if you're centering your fear, then you're focusing on your feelings more so than the cause. And so for me, it's like just reframe it. What's more important, your fear or actually helping? I sometimes find kind of just in anything, if I'm feeling frightened to take action, I picture a real person who my action might help. So, you know, like if I want to sell a product and I'm scared about doing it, I think about who actually needs it. Like who would I yeah. be doing a disservice to if it didn't exist in the world? Yeah. And I guess that that's the same thing here isn't it it's thinking about okay this is my fear but how much greater is the fear of somebody who's on the receiving end of these racist microaggressions or larger aggressions in the day-to-day -day? yeah absolutely absolutely and you know for some people they're more able to empathize with this um because they might be a white mom and they're now raising a mixed heritage or mixed race child and they're suddenly seeing the world very differently now mm. they're raising a brown baby. Um, or it just might be, you know, just because they don't want to repeat patterns of behaviour and they're raising, they want to raise a, 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 they're raising a, a little boy who is white and they want him to leverage whatever privilege, whatever societal privileges he has so that he can help change things or they might have a best friend who is black um it's it's easier to be able to be engaged in the work when you have somebody who you know will benefit from it um I get that some people find this really hard if they've never experienced racism to to understand the magnitude of it but when I reframe it in terms of sexism right then then they get it so yeah yeah so people almost need like a personal in in order mm. to be able to feel it sadly yeah it's um it makes me sad that that's the case but 
it is for some people. They just, they're not invested in it until they feel it, which yeah. is why my talks and the work that I do will often use children as examples of how they are learning at such an early age racism. Yeah. And it's not that their parents are far-right extremists. It's their parents are everyday well-meaning people. And because this stuff is so subconscious and so subtle, children are already starting to learn racial bias as young as three years old. And so you see it. So I use children. And I'm like, this is how it repeats. This is, this is the work. Is all, if you don't sort this out early on, it's already ingrained by the time they're three. Absolutely. It's such a huge responsibility as a parent, like, but also like an amazing opportunity, I suppose, to... To help them unlearn it together. Yeah. yeah. When we moved, so I, my husband and I both grew up in Manchester. We went to, you know, like really diverse schools. We just took that for granted. Moved out to Yorkshire and we're in this tiny village. It's got one primary school in the village and gets outstanding on Ofsted in every category except diversity because there is none. It is a very white, very conservative area. Mm. Um. And for me and my husband, like we had a lot of conversations about it. What we ended up doing is we've put her in a Steiner school because it was a lot more diverse. It kind of seemed to have uh, found like the people who were looking for something different in the area. But like we had to pay for that. It wasn't an option yeah. that most people can just have. Just so you can get that that lived experience or just yeah. just diversity in who you're surrounding yourself with in 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 soci- socially because that's that's hugely important as well so I guess the next logical question I would love to ask you is like what can people do but I'm also very aware that that's a huge question to just plunk in your lap in the middle of a podcast <laughs> how, how can everyone just fix this please you fix it by having the courage to explore what your inherent racism is yeah. um, and the truth is most people don't want to do that because it's uncomfortable it's painful um, for some people, there's a lot of guilt or shame attached to it, anger. Um, that's the biggest thing you can do because when you start to explore what lies beneath, um, then you can start to do something and it becomes really easy to answer that question because everything just starts falling into place. There are things you can do, you know, you can, um, there are practical things you can start doing like diversity. If you're on Instagram, it's diversifying your feed, following different types of people, um, who are black or brown and, uh, you know, seeing a filtered version of what their lives are, but just stepping outside of your comfort zone, um, going to events, reading books, um, doing anti-racism courses to help you with that self-interrogation, whatever it might be, the biggest thing you can do is unlearn your racism because it's there. Whether you choose to defend it or not, it's there. Um, and most of it is subconscious and it's learned and it's a unavoidable byproduct from being born or spending a significant amount of time in a country that legalized oppression. Like that's so powerful as well. It's not your fault. No. It's not our fault. This just is being given is. to us. And just we like can... the pa- again, just like the patriarchy. That's yeah. you know, we don't blame an individual man <laughs> <laughs> for for what they have the opportunities that they've had simply for being born a man. No. no, it's a system. And it's the same. And I'm going to use the I'm going to use the words, don't panic. It's the same for white supremacy. Yeah. And when um anti-racism educators use the words white supremacy, we're not talking about a minority of people in white hoods burning people. We're talking about a system just like the patriarchy. 
And it's visible. It's so visible when you look around for it. You only have to look at politics or like who's in power at big businesses to see that the supremacy is still being held by a lot of white men. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, that's, that's what I said. When you've got those kinds of powerful structures in place for so long, it's going to take a long time for it to undo, especially if we're not aware of how we are continuing to enable it and be complicit in it. I think the sooner we we, we become more self-aware, we can start disrupting it a bit more um, and speaking up, um, you know, on issues that matter, on demanding um you know curriculums at school to to be more representative of British history um I don't know there are so many things we can do to advocate within our communities but I think the first thing you can do to help is to have the courage to start to explore what your inherent isms are and unlearn them because it's really possible it's really simple it just requires courage I think that's one of the things that makes your messaging so powerful. I get, and I guess it's your psychology background. And did you train as a life coach? If I got that right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that that ability to almost like take your thoughts out of your head and look at them and choose which ones you want to put back. Yes. That's, that's a huge simplification. Sometimes it's a little <laughs> bit harder. But like, I wish someone had taught me that skill at school. But you can learn it at any time. And yeah. there's something like you realize then that actually like you could have the most hideous thought in the world but if you catch it in your head and think I don't want to think that and I don't believe Mm. that then then you have a chance to actually change like I think we think we're at the mercy of our thoughts and they just decide who we are Mm. but we're not our thoughts are not facts and we really get stuck with that I mean that's I mean you see it all the time on question time where where there are some um very problematic views being shared on mainstream TV that are factually incorrect. Um, But they've convinced themselves that those thoughts are fact when they're not. So for us, it's like recognizing, right, is this thought right now, is this fact or not? Is it really a circumstance? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. is this real or not? And if it's not, choose to let it go or choose to, right, okay, why am I thinking this? What reading do I need to do? What do I need to do to help expand my understanding of this subject or whatever? Um, it's being really, it's, it's recognising when our thoughts are not factual and having the choice to attach to them or not can be really liberating. There's a, I can't remember his name. Oh, if it comes to me, I'll share it. But he said something just that's brilliant. We are just one thought away from having a completely different experience. Oh, my goodness. Yes. It's, it's so powerfully true. And yet, like how many of us actually actively choose our thoughts? <laughs> Not like, many. This, is like, this could be a whole podcast in and of itself. <laughs> and then I guess the really powerful thing there as well is once you have spotted these inherent isms within your own thinking, within our own thinking, then you know what other people are probably thinking who exactly. are like you too. So you do know exactly where to kind of attack it from. Exactly. Um, and that I get. I think that's really powerful in your work that you're skilling people up you're not giving them the answers. You are helping people uncover their own answers and then go yeah. and do their version of this work so that we can attack it from every single angle. That's it. And, and you know, don't get me wrong. There are I, my online um, anti-racism course. 
I mean, I say it takes a year, but it, it's very dependent on how consistent and how regularly you do it. But one, I've, I'm getting my, my graduates now coming through and it took one of them 11 months. And although within the course I'm giving you tips, I'm giving you practical tools, I'm giving you I'm giving you uh, tools to help you have conversations that might be challenging. But equally, the more you do your own self-interrogation, the easier the conversations become, because exactly that, the people that you're having these conversations with probably have the same thought process as you at some point. You're just at different parts of the journey. And so you know how to approach it. So, yeah, it really does become that's why when people say, how do I do it? How do I do it? Start with yourself. It's like you, you can't just read a book and then do it. You have to do the self-interrogation. And I guess you have to screw up. Like, yeah, that seems pretty inevitable. And I know that's one thing that that's where my fear comes up because I have a big platform and I, it's screwing up in public is a really horrible thing to do. But then I guess there's so much learning, not just for yourself, but then for everyone watching as well. So as a as a black woman, I would prefer it if you are somebody who is wanting to help dismantle racism, you're wanting to be an ally. I would much rather you I would much rather you did something and screwed up than did nothing at all because silent complicity is power that's what's enabled racism to continue into 2020. Yeah. Not not people in the KKK in Britain's first, they are a minority. When you look at numbers, they are insignificant. They are insignificant. The powerful majority and silent complicity is, is a powerful, powerful, um, is powerful. So, yes, I think that's it. It's the fear. I mean, and I and I also acknowledge that. I know we're in this call out culture, which I don't particularly think helps. But I think if you're transparent and saying, "I don't know it all yet. I'm on the journey. I am going to mess up, and if I do, I'm open to receiving feedback." And then it's fine. Then it's a um, then you're just coming from a human and honest place rather than parading around like you've you've done the work and you know it all because there are people who've done my course who still will get things wrong but they'll catch themselves they'll catch the pattern before it becomes a thing and yes. then they will act to change the outcome and to me if the outcome changes we're going in the right direction yes and this stuff probably will take a long time like i feel like it's a lifetime's work just it for is. myself for everybody but then I guess it's what the next generation then grows up seeing and that's how change can kind of filter through. Mm. Do you feel optimistic? I do when I'm surrounded by, um, like, so when we had the general, uh, the general election in Christmas mm. and um, the Conservatives were, were, in, were found to be have voted in power again there was just complete devastation on my timelines in my feed from people like I don't understand it how can we have voted for this these are people who are openly racist they've done this this and this they've they've done oh I don't understand why we're voting for this and Labour would have been the answer and I'm like Labour would not have been the answer Mm. Because we have to do the work ourselves. Like, the change doesn't start with the government. Don't get me wrong. We should and we must hold our government accountable and put pressure on them. But when did, you know, the government was the one that that made slavery legal. (laughs) (laughs) That was white men as well, yeah. (laughs) So why are we turning to the government? Like, we have to, it's it's our inner work and it's really easy to... um, abdicate responsibility onto somebody else well it's their fault it's like this and 
And it's their fault. It's easier. No, we have to do this ourselves. Um, So I thought, you know, this is what needs to happen. Because what I'm seeing now is that there is more of a momentum for people to do this work. Uh, My following has increased significantly. Um, So there are more people now, right, okay, we can't rely on the government now. So what can I do? I want tangible tools. I want to be part of this. Like, what can I do? So um, I'm inspired in respect that, yes, there is an increase in people expressing bigoted views, but there is also a more palpable increase of people who, who want better for everyone. And that's what I choose to focus on because otherwise it's too hard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've got to kind of adjust your lens to what yeah. what helps you. My yeah. husband always says that whenever I despair of the political climate here and in the States, he's always like, when you look at history, it takes this, it has to get bad yeah, for people before to... before it gets better. Yeah, yeah. My, together. my husband said the same thing. So when the first, um, when we had the vote for Brexit, which I, which I believe that most of us were not wholly informed about yes. I certainly didn't feel wholly informed I don't I don't think I'm an unintelligent person if I can gauge what the hell was going on I'm you know yeah I, I think I don't think people are wholly informed with that vote but when I was like I said to David I said my husband I said who are you voting for he said, what are you voting for to remain or leave and he said I I, I think I'm gonna vote Brexit and I'm like why <laughs> <laughs> and his reasoning and also, to me, this is an analogy I use a lot because people get very um, angered by anyone who's voted Brexit. Yeah. They're horrible racists. I was like, no, they're not. My husband is a black man who I love dearly and respect. He voted Brexit. So let's not go in this black or white, good versus bad dichotomy. It's not helpful. But his reasoning was, I, I got curious with him. I said, why are you voting Brexit? And his was, the current political system is not working and it needs a shake up. Um, controversial maybe but that's why he voted Brexit and a shake-up we are having well absolutely and and yeah like our both our husbands say maybe that is what's necessary to to uncover what has always lurked beneath and is and is now coming to the surface to galvanize people which is awful I really wish that that was not the case and we could just do it in some lovely soft and peaceful way (laughs) no we're human beings we're flawed yes we absolutely (laughs) are and like this stuff goes deep I think feminism probably is a good um parallel for people because like so many of the conversations I have even on this podcast about like as women earning and how many of us did see our mums have jobs but there's still so much guilt and shame and fear about being women taking money and can we trust ourselves yeah and that you know that's that's we're much further down the line I feel like with women and financial independence than we are with a lot of this stuff yeah it it gets its roots really really deep and that trauma is sort of held for a long time it is held for a long time and it's you know I'm doing I'm going on my own healing journey um I'm very I'm very spiritual um and I'm going on my own healing journey and there is a lot of 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 research that shows that there there is such a thing as transgenerational trauma where we pass on trauma particularly from womb to womb from our mothers and um I, I believe in that wholeheartedly. I'm doing more reading on it. So once I've got a more formulated opinion, I'll share it. But absolutely, it just doesn't disappear with a, a, a law change. It's in us. It's in us. It's <laughs> on a molecular level. 
what you just said then as well reminds me of a quote who I can't remember who said this either I will find both our quotes and put the attributions in the show <laughs> notes um but it's something along the lines of trauma is handed down from generation to generation until someone has the courage to face it to, yeah and for me uh, I just did a healing I'm going to give them a plug that they are just incredible if anyone is wanting to go on a spiritual healing journey I just did a healing uh, retreat with the bridge retreat and it was the most profound experience I've ever, I've ever had and I think everyone in the world should do it but um that was exactly what we were learning on the retreat retreat we pass it down onto each other until someone chooses to break it yeah. and so a lot of what I was sharing was about how racism has impacted me and the trauma that I've carried and finding a way to heal from it release it and what came up in that for me was that I am the one to break the generational cycle that's amazing I mean a huge responsibility but I feel like you're living up to it yeah right I mean right now like I say I won't be doing it for for 10 years but right now it's my calling and it's you know it's a pleasure to work with people who are open and wanting to to be part of change it really is a a pleasure and a privilege to watch and also to see the difference and the impact that it's making with the people who are doing the work it's it's a it's palpable so yeah I feel like there's so much more I would love to talk to you about your whole (laughs) business I want to go into all the details I might just have to get you to come back because I'm conscious of your time um while we are plugging your amazing work could you share some details of where people can find out more yeah of course so I'm always on Instagram probably too much um (laughs) aren't we all (laughs) it's Nova Reed official and uh Twitter is Nova Reed Fish because I couldn't use the characters (laughs) Uh, I I lurk on there as well um my website is novareed.com and yeah I have an online anti-racism course I um come in and do speaking events like inspirational speeches or come in and do consultancy for communities I do a lot in healthcare I work with birth workers I work with charities I work with big corporates and smaller corporates and small business owners so anyone that wants to be the change in some way and sort of lean into their allyship um I don't know when this is going out but I'll mention it anyway Mm -hmm. I also have a online course called courageous courage which is just five days and it's particularly for people who want to be a better ally but they just don't feel confident they definitely don't feel courageous they're worried about getting it wrong and they want to build their confidence and reduce any anti-racism related anxiety so that they can be more effective and that starts on the 2nd of March and I'll be rolling that out throughout the year as well so yeah and you've got a mailing list haven't you as well yes I do yes actually one of the things I thought was so just genius when I went on your website before this call was you have a an option where people can pay you for like half an hour to pick your brain oh I forgot about that yes I do so (laughs) good because I bet otherwise you would just be inundated with emails going can I just ask you just a quick question just this one thing yeah and I do I get on average I get about 80 messages 80 dms in my instagram a day it's impossible to respond to all of them. I try my best, but for those who want specific advice, especially if it's business related, then I will point them towards pick my brain or I'll send them towards a TED talk or an article that I've already done, um, depending on what their needs are. So yeah, I do have pick, pick my brain. Absolutely right. Because we should be paying you for that work. So thank you. Thank you. I would love to talk to you all day long. Um, and I think this is going to be a really valuable episode. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on. 
Show notes for this episode are at meandorla.co.uk forward slash podcast 89. I've also put a few links in there to resources and materials that I found useful on my own anti-racism journey that might be helpful to other people out there who are approaching this work from a similar place. It's a quote that I've seen used on social media an awful lot in the last week, so maybe it's becoming a bit trite, but I understand that I will never understand, but I stand with you. Sending so much love to all of you. Have a great week, and I'll speak to you soon.